a doctor at Calvary. That's right. We have Dr. Joseph Berger on here to join us today on Truth Be Told, Hosea 4-6 podcast. Stay tuned. What is going on, everybody? This your boy, Trevi Trev. Trevor, one half of TBT, Hosea 4-6. Truth be told, Hosea 4-6 podcast coming to you with another episode on the day. Uh, today is Good Friday. And this is the day that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, went to Calvary's cross on our behalf. Uh, he died for the remission of sin. And so joining us today, uh, I've got a very special treat. Uh, for you all that are tuning in with us. First and foremost, we do like to say thank you for all of the downloads that we have received. We're not even a year old. We turn a year. Um, I, think, I think it's May 22nd that we turn a year old. And uh, so we're just so much grateful and thankful to God. First, we thank uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the head of our life. Listen, uh, we're not perfect. We have mess ups at times. We We slip and fall. But Listen, that's a part of the salvation process. Uh, that's a part of that process that we go through. We're going to have some storms. We're going to have some bad days. We're going to have some days. We're like, man, God, I just don't know. Uh, but that's when he'll send that fresh of uh, that, that breath of fresh air uh, to keep us pushing along this path of life. So, but anyways, we just truly want to say thank you. And without no pun intended, we are global. So we're, we're in all, we're going all across the world. We're, uh, recently, when we checked, uh, I know we're in Africa, uh, different parts of Europe, Canada, South America, Central America, uh, various parts of Asia. So, I mean, we, we're out there, we're getting the gospel out, we're getting the truth out. Uh, hopefully, we're pushing everybody to research and do some stuff. One thing that, that, that really has excited people has been anything pertaining to is these subjects, I guess, Somebody, a the, somebody with a very theological mind that can bridge these two, and they, I mean, now they really do bridge. But uh, our highest downloaded content has been anything pertaining to the resurrection of Jesus and stuff pertaining to the occult or demonology. Uh, but we we know, and even those that are not Christians know that when things go haywire. As Paul said in uh, Philippians chapter two, I believe it's ten, eleven, and twelve. That at that name. Right. There's every knee has to bow in heaven, on earth uh, and below the earth. And so even those that are involved in practices, when stuff gets haywire, they are known to say uh, Jesus or scream out Jesus, Jesus Christ. And the phenomenon stops. So there's power in the name of Jesus Christ. There's still power in his blood. And we believe that and we know that and we hold on to it. Hey, listen, so back in 1985. It's a very well-respected archaeology, archaeological magazine slash society. I, I subscribe to them. Uh, they're, they're, they're called Biblical Archaeology Review slash Biblical Archaeology Society. They put out an article. I'm going to try to not butcher uh, this 
archaeologist name, uh, Vesicilius Tavarius. I hope I didn't butcher that. It's spelled V-A-S-S-I-L-I-O-S. Last name T-Z-A-F-E-R-I-S. But what was put out was a heel bone found with a nail in it. And uh, so it changed the trajectory of what scholars knew about crucifixion and even some arguments. And uh, we're going to that's going to be our subject on the day. We're going to talk about uh, all things crucifixion with Jesus, but more so we're going to focus in on the medical aspect. Uh, those that have been following us on social media, uh, you saw that we posted about uh, Dr. Joseph Bergeron, who is a medical doctor uh, and who wrote about the death of Jesus Christ. Um, I found his book in Barnes and Nobles. I was just scrolling, seeing what, uh, trying to kill some time. And hey, there's a Barnes and Nobles there. I'm an avid reader. Let me go in there. Saw his book, had to get it. Saw that it was forwarded by Dr. Gary Habermas. Uh, so what a treat that was. Uh, so I don't want to take up too much more time. I'm going to let Dr. Bergeron brag on himself as he should, because uh, the book is phenomenal. Dr. Bergeron, welcome to Truth Be Told, Hosea 4-6 podcast. Uh, well, <clears throat> thank you, Trevor. You're too kind. And, and it's an honor to be with you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hopefully, I'm not, am, I, am I pronouncing your last name correct? Well, it's Bergeron, actually. Bergeron. There we go. I can yes. butcher a name. I told you. I can butcher a name. <laughs> Dr. It's, Bergeron. Well, thank you. God bless you for being here. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I'm a, a, a physician, an MD, and I'm a specialist in the specialty of physical medicine and rehabilitation. And a lot of people don't know what that is. A lot of doctors don't know what that is. But basically, it's I'm not a surgeon, but I treat a lot of the same thing that orthopedics would treat or neurosurgery would treat. I do a lot of diagnostic assessments and so forth. And I treat um, musculoskeletal types things. And in that context, a lot of injuries and uh, mm -hmm. uh, so forth. And, and uh, I've been doing that for, I don't know, 25 years now. And um, so part of that job is to figure out how injuries occurred, how, uh, you know, what, what caused what caused them, and what what do you expect to be the prognosis and the outcome from them? Uh, so, how I got into uh, studying the crucifixion of Jesus was that uh, the Christian medical student group at Indiana University, so I live in Indiana, uh, asked me to come and give a talk for their one of their lunch meetings. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I didn't know what to talk about. A lot of those lectures are on ethics and things like that. And I have that kind of background, but I knew that physicians had written about the crucifixion. So I, I collected everything I could find and I reviewed it and I presented it to the students. That was 2008. And that launched me on a 10 year study of reading everything I could about the crucifixion of Jesus. And ultimately to the book that you, that you found at Barnes and Nobles. And uh, it, it's, you mentioned that uh, article by Tavares. It, it's, uh, it's funny you mentioned that because I possess the last known copy of that journal. <laughs> it's, it's no longer available. You might be able to find it uh, somewhere in a, in a download, but. Uh, that's, that's wild. You know, <laughs> and, and, and when stuff goes out of print like that, it, it can get quite expensive. Well, it's priceless now because I'm not selling mine. 
I wouldn't. I wouldn't dare. Only way I got a copy of that um, was 40 by 40, uh, which Herschel Shanks that, you know, if, as far as I know, he is over. I don't know if Herschel Shanks is still living, but it was his thing. Um, he put out a 40 or bar put out a 40 by 40 and it had that article in there. And I wrote a few times on the resurrection Rollins seminary, but it was right in time for, uh, my last paper in, or one of my last papers in seminary and apologetics course. And so I wrote on, it was a class on miracles, miracle 610. And so my paper was about dating the creed in first Corinthians 15, three through five. And so I will, I don't want to spoil it, but we'll get into what does his findings mean as far as leaving people on the cross for an extended period of time, like some scholars purporting theologians versus what we now, what is now known about Jewish practices and honor, honor, honoring Romans, honoring their customs of certain, you know, having the person, they have to be buried by a certain time, but we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Anything else you want to, you want to disclose? No, uh, I just, I, I don't, I, you know, I don't make any money from selling the book. I donate any proceeds to campus ministry and uh, I'm not here to sell a book. I'm just here to glorify God and, and Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 All right. So let me, let me ask you this where, and I know you said how you got, got involved with looking at uh, Jesus's death from the medical ex uh, medical stance. Um, I have the book on my deck by Dr. Zugaby. Yes. Different people will put the passion at different points. Zugaby says, and I'm paraphrasing, he starts it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus sweating blood. What are your thoughts on putting the passion starting at that point, sweating blood? And then is it possible, humanly possible for us to sweat blood, for people to sweat blood? You know, I have to confess, I never, I never got that. I never quite understood how that could happen. And for, for a lot of years until I got into studying this, I just didn't know what to make of that. Um, but, you know, that's in Luke, I think, 24. And Luke was a physician, and he must have thought about it as being something significant, because it really does happen. The, the problem is it's so rare that, that very little is known about it. In my book, I talk about two cases that were admitted to the hospital and studied uh, extensively, including laboratory work and, and skin biopsies. Even still, we really don't know how it occurs. One of the skin biopsies showed blood collecting under the skin and then oozing out through the skin. The other biopsy was normal. And so we really don't know how it occurs. What we do know is that it is related to anxiety. And when people exhibit those kind of symptoms, uh, as rare as it is sometimes seen, they're treated with anxiety medicine. Now, the, and that's called hematidrosis or sweating of blood in, in Latin. But hematidrosis is the medical word. And, um, you know, some biblical scholars don't even think that passage in the Bible is true because it's not in some of the older mag, uh, manuscripts, I understand. But the problem is it really happens. And 
you know, it had to be significant to Luke. Now, here's the here's the significant point about Jesus, is that the rarest kind of hematidrosis is called single episode psychogenic hematidrosis. That's people that have hematidrosis one time only in their life. And there's only a handful of cases that have been reported in medical literature that are like that. And they, they always occur in the threat of injury and almost always it's prior to execution. And so Jesus, Jesus would have seen people crucified. It was common practice for the Romans. So he understood fully what that was going to be to him physically. And I'm sure from a spiritual standpoint of what it meant for him to bear the sins of humanity is something that, that we can talk about, but probably never really understand fully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, even, you know, you look in um, there in uh, Luke 22 with God and Gethsemane, Jesus is on his knees praying. You know, and so for a, a Jewish man, first century Jewish man to get on his knees and pray is a sign of I like God, I seriously need your help right now. You can, you know, that's when they when they were on the knees praying, they they were in need of like it was serious, like what Dr. Uh, Bergeron saying is is in need of, you know, that that anxiety feeling something is getting ready to happen. I don't want to, I don't know if we can, you know, say bad per se, because I mean, it was foretold in scriptures and Jesus kept saying the son of man must suffer and die. And the disciples never got it, you know, because to them, the Messiah was not supposed to go through this, you know, but I think that we really brush over this because preceding that that's when Judas rose up with his fake, friends his fake homies and you know jesus will say we'll read jesus's lines and and we'll say uh you know you betray the son of man with a kiss oh you betray the son he didn't say it like that this is somebody who fell on his knees that's a that's a you know referred to as a rabbi a great teacher a prophet you know uh he's on his knees he's in serious need of help he's asking god to remove the cup and here comes judas and it's not something uh, nonchalant. He's saying, Judas, you betray the son of man with a kiss. Like, it's really like you really about to do what you're about to do. You know, I just don't I don't think. And, and this is why I wanted uh, Dr. Bergeron on is to explain what Christ really went through. Like, I don't think we understand Roman persecution. How brutal was Roman persecution? Well, it was, it was, it, the Romans considered it obscene. A, a Roman citizen wouldn't be crucified. Mm-hmm. The fourth century uh, historian Eusebius said that people would be awestruck watching the beatings prior to crucifixion because they could see the, the veins and arteries uh, exposed to light. They could see internal organs sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so people were beaten close to death by by the, the Roman scourging prior to the crucifixion. Now, what it's important to, in Jesus' beating that that was the second beating. He was beaten at the home of Annas and Caiaphas, which was probably a, would have been a mansion, multi generational mansion where Annas right. 
of his families lived together. And they had the trial there and they beat him there before they took him to Pontius Pilate. So he's already beaten up by the time he gets there. Mm-hmm. That, that's important because it, it plays, it puts him on a trajectory of injury that's even more than what would typically happen uh, with someone that is about to be crucified. The other thing that, you know, uh, when Pilate turned Jesus over to the soldiers, it said a whole company of soldiers gathered around and started beating him. Because you understand, Jesus was convicted of the crime of being the king of the Jews. Right. So they would view that as, as a political insurgent and someone who was in defiance of Caesar. And they would get all the more ruffled and take it out on him more than that. So Jesus was beaten severely uh, prior to even starting to, uh, to walk to the uh, cross. And, uh, you know, it's as it's been said that the person could easily die many times before getting to the cross itself. Um, but, you know, that Jesus beating was more than that. And now, now that's very important because it gives us a clue about what was happening to Jesus. Right. Because he, you know, in, in the day they would, uh, the cross was made out of two pieces. The vertical piece it was called the stipes and it was permanently fixed in the ground. The, uh, the cross section was called the patibulum and that would, the victim would have to carry that to the crucifixion site along with a plaque that, that stated what his crime was. And so Jesus, the Romans aren't going to carry it for you. Right. So Jesus started walking, but he couldn't. And so they, they picked an innocent bystander to carry that section of the cross to the crucifixion site. Some people estimate it maybe 60 pounds, something in that range. So the, the Romans, the, the Jews wouldn't, would maybe, they would do 40 40 slashes minus 139. The Romans would do whatever they felt like doing. And they weren't supposed to kill him before the cross, but you know, there was no limitation on the beating that they could give uh, the, the criminal, the convicted person. But Jesus couldn't even walk that last distance. So that suggests that he's starting to go into shock. Now, shock uh, has a lot of meanings, you know. It, could mean electricity, it could mean, you know, being surprised or flabbergasted or whatever, you, you know, a lot of different meanings. But in mm-hmm. men, shock has to do with a decreased volume of circulating blood. And when people start going into shock, the first symptoms are being lightheaded, dizzy, weak, sweaty, clammy, confused, you know, those types of symptoms. And so you can you can put that together and say it looks like Jesus was experiencing that even before uh, he got to the cross. Uh, when they got to the cross, uh, what they would do is nail the hands to the the uh, cross section, the horizontal section of the cross, mm-hmm. um, and you know in put some x-rays from Dr. Barbet. He did experiments on that. And if you put a nail through the center of your palm and then hang somebody off of that, uh, about a hundred pounds, that'll pull out. 
So that's oh, wow. somebody on the cross. And it's funny because Dr. Bar he was a surgeon and when he amputated somebody's arm for whatever reason, he would do these studies on people and he figured this out. But if you take your ring finger and bend it down on your hand as far as you can until it touches uh, the, just before your wrist crease, uh, at the vertical crease in your palm, if you bend your ring finger down as far as you can, and then if you drive a nail through that spot, that will go through your wrist bones without fracturing them. And that will hold that in place up to 250 pounds of pull. So that kind of nailing of the hand would, would hold, hold the victim in place. Okay. Then the Romans would pick up the horizontal section with the victim nailed to it and lift it up overhead and put it on the vertical uh, piece of the cross that was set in the ground. And they would hang it up there with a mortise and tenon coupling or not mortise and tenon joint, just kind of hold it there. Uh, and then they would nail the feet uh, to the vertical section of the cross. What's interesting, if you think about that, get the image of that, um, Jesus and, and everyone crucified with him would have been eye to eye with their executioners. It wouldn't have been high up in the air. They would have been eye to eye because it had to be uh, low enough for the soldiers to lift it up and put it on, on top of that. Then they would nail the feet. Now, you, you mentioned the archaeological study from uh, Severus. And, um, you know, there's only two archaeological finds of crucifixion victims. Right. I read that in your book. I didn't know that until I read that in your book. I knew of the one Severus had found, but I didn't know there was another one. Yeah. Well, that was just recently reported. Okay. Uh, and it was found in Northern Italy. In fact, I had already written the book when I came across that article. And I told the publisher, wait, <laughs> I got to add some more to this. <laughs> but, but yeah, there's only two cases in, 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 in the, both of those cases the nail went through the heel, what's called the calcaneus bone. If you walk on your heels, that's the bone you're walking on. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we don't know for sure how Jesus' feet were nailed, but, and it is anatomically possible. There was a recent anatomical study done where, where somebody put a nail through the top of the foot and showed that that could be done. And so, yeah, it could be done. Um, but the archaeological finds we have, at least those went through the heel. And if you stop and think about it, it might've been easier to put a nail through the heel than through the top of a foot who's somebody from somebody who's objecting and kicking and struggling. So whatever the case is, the victim was fastened on there in a way that they were not going to be able to get off of there. Um, you know, crucifixion, like I said, the Romans considered crucifixion obscene. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it was horrible because there was no injury to a vital organ. Uh, so death was by torture and by long duration. There are some literary references of people being on the cross for up to a week. Right. Certainly, you know, the, I mean, the, the people that were crucified next to Jesus were still alive after he had died. So this was something that would last and, and, it, it was, you know, it was a horrible thing for somebody to go through. But the Romans, you know, they had intense belief in, in using crucifixion as a, as a deterrent uh, in capital punishment. Uh, you know, with the, the Spartacus 
uh, insurrection in, in 30, I think 70, what is it? I think it's 70 BC. The Romans crucified 6,000 people on the Roman highway uh, from uh, uh, Capua to Rome. Mm. Anyway, it's 120 kilograms, uh, kilometers. And 6,000 people. That's a bunch of people. That's a lot of people. <laughs> that would make a statement, you know. Oh, yeah. You don't mess with the, the Roman army. And then the Romans dispatched 30,000 troops and put that whole insurrection down. But, you know, they weren't, they weren't fooling around. And, and you know, if, if you were a political insurgent, runaway slave, any of those kind of things, that would put you on a track to be uh, crucified. And that's, that's how Jesus, you know, got, got into that. I think that was the obvious next step once he was condemned to death by the Romans because his, his charge was being a political insurgent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, something was happening to Jesus that wasn't happening to the other people because Jesus died in six hours. And like I said, people could be on the cross for days. Mm-hmm. Um, but something was happening to him that was different than was happening to the other people, something that you wouldn't be able to see just by observation. Right. That's why the multiple beatings that he had are of medical importance or clinical importance because it put him on a trajectory to a rapid death, more rapid than others. And that's where I think he, it's the best explanation for that is that he was succumbing to shock. And again, shock is the depletion of a circulating blood volume. Right. Yeah. Um, what would, let me, let, let me go back for a second. So when they nail Jesus to the cross, yeah, would he have felt any type of shooting pain of the arms? What would that, what would that medically feel like? It would feel like a lightning bolt shooting up your arm. Mm. Because the nerve that is your carpal tunnel nerve that goes through your hand and into your fingers goes right through that spot. Mm-hmm. Barbet did those experiments and he pulled the nail out. He could see that the nerve was cut in half or mashed. And so what you would feel like, it, it would be a horrible thing to be like lightning bolts shooting up your arm. Mm. Shoo. Now, I want to, you know, there's another thing that to me is very fascinating, and I don't, I, and we read over it, but it's, it's medically fascinating, and that is Jesus said, I thirst. Right. And that's not regular thirst. When your blood volume starts going down, you're losing blood, mm-hmm. it triggers mechanisms in your body. You have pressure sensors your arteries they're called baroreceptors and when they detect that you don't have enough blood flowing through there they start signaling the brain uh to the thirst centers in the brain and start saying you need to get some fluid on board right now the other thing is there's a system what's called the renin-angiotensin system in your kidneys and they start to to react and try to conserve fluid and they also start signaling the brain to say, you need to get some fluid right now. And so you've got these two physiologic mechanisms bombarding the brain saying, you have to get water, you have to get water now. 
And so the kind of uh, thirst that someone has when they're going into shock is not like regular thirst, like we all experience. It's a kind of a maddening type of thirst where uh, you know people can have hallucinations of water and things like that. And mm -hmm. it's just an agonizing thing. And there are some descriptions, literary descriptions of, of people in agonizing thirst being cruci crucified. So when Jesus said, I thirst, he wasn't saying, I'm just thirsty. He's saying, I'm dying. <laughs> I don't have enough blood on board. And his, his, he, it would have been, he would have been screaming. Wow. Wow. I did, I did not know that. Um, I don't think a lot of people knew that. Well, and, and, you know, the thing about it is that, you know, we, we were talking about all this stuff, and, and I think it, it brings home to us, you know, the suffering that Jesus experienced. Right. But what it really said, you know, it, you know, I'm a doctor, and if I go watch a movie or read a book, and they have things that have medical content in it, and, and if it's just way out in left field and just bizarre and nonsensical medically, it ruins the movie for me. I can't watch it, you know. And if... If the things that were happening to Jesus didn't make sense medically, it would be easily detectable to physicians who review the scriptures. But the things that we read in there are consistent with what medical knowledge is. So, you know, it's, it, it seems obvious that Jesus is going into shock. There's symptoms of that um, from the time he walks to the cross. There's symptoms of that when he's on the cross. And, and, and he dies quickly, because, and that points to blood loss, um, because, you know, you can only lose so much blood. If you lose about 40% of your blood, you, you don't have any blood pressure anymore. Mm -hmm. You're dead at that point. So, you know, he was progressing that way. Uh, and I propose in the book what I think, one thing I think may have been happening to him and I, in the medical journal article I wrote uh, in the Journal of Forensic and Legal Medicine, that when people are going into shock from trauma, which is body in injury to the body, which was all over his body, when people go into hemorrhagic, they're bleeding, they have hemorrhagic shock from trauma and tissue damage like that, then there's a complication that can occur where the blood loses its ability to clot. And so then what happens then, and that's a deadly thing, I mean, that's even in modern emergency rooms, that's hard to control. Oh, wow. In Jesus's time, it would have meant certain and rapid death. And it's a snowball thing. It's like shock causes more shock. So it just keeps snowballing and it doesn't stop. And there's nothing you can, <clears throat> when it gets to a certain point, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and for an example, some people have asked me, uh, did anyone ever survive crucifixion? And, and, uh, and the answer is uh, yes. And it's not Jesus. I'm not talking about Jesus. One person survived crucifixion. A Jewish historian, uh, Flavius Josephus, uh, he was Jewish. He, you know, he defected to being a Roman and he wrote mm -hmm. his history of the Jews. And I, you're, you're much more student than I am. I know you know that stuff. Um, but he happened to see three of his friends being crucified. He was an eyewitness to the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. So he saw three of his friends being crucified. And during this, that time, they would crucify up to 500 people in a day. Right. 
uh, he saw three of his friends and he went and he was able to get a stay of execution and get them all down off the cross. Mm. Died anyway. One of them managed to, to nurse back to health. Now, now the reason that, you know, the, the body can only take so much if you, if you push it to a certain limit in terms of blood loss and volume depletion or all that that does to you chemically. If you go to a certain point, it doesn't matter what you do. If you take the person that has experienced enough bad enough injury and progressed far enough in shock, you can, you can take them off the cross. You can put them in an emergency room. You can normalize all their blood chemistry and vital signs and they're still going to die because there's just that point of no return. And, and, so there's that one literary episode of someone surviving crucifixion, but some people, well, what about Jesus? Somebody said, well, you know, maybe Jesus survived crucifixion. What do you think? And, you know, that, that's, that's absurd at the face of it um, for a lot of reasons. One, you know, uh, Roman military discipline was severe. Right. If you fell asleep while you were on watch, they were going to beat you to death. And if you let a capital criminal escape, you are going to die. And, you know, we have that example in Acts chapter 16 of the Philippian jailer. And Philippian area was part of the Roman Empire. Why? He thought Paul had escaped jail. He was going to fall on his sword. He didn't want to face what was coming down the road to him. So, you know, it's to, to let a criminal escape would, be, would mean immediate death for you. And, and so we see that when, when Jesus has finally died and Joseph of Arimathea wants to come and take his body, he has to get permission from Pontius Pilate. And, you know, people, at the crucifixion victims, this almost never happened. That's why, that's why it's so strange. People, you know, the Romans used crucifixion for six centuries. Why? Why can't we find more remains? The, the reason is they would leave them hanging up there to be eaten by scavenging animals. Mm-hmm. But you could request the body for burial. And so there's, there's only three we know of in history. One was Jesus. The other two was the guy that Severus uh, found that was in Jerusalem and then found in, in, in northern Italy. But, you know, they weren't going to let that body down if it, there was any sign of life in it. That just wasn't going to happen because it would mean their death. And there's literary reference that um, the body could be given for burial uh, if if it was stabbed. And and so the thinking is that they weren't in the rare cases where they ever released the body. They weren't going to do that unless they delivered a coup de grace, uh, some sort of blow of death that there was no question that the body uh, was dead before they released it. Now, in this case, that was a spear in the chest. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's really interesting medically, too. Uh, because, right, with the blood and water? Yeah. Now, the reason, the reason that happened was if you have blunt trauma to your chest, if you're beaten with hoses, if you're beaten, you know, uh, whatever, the things that will happen to your lungs is that your lungs can collapse and then fluid can collect around the lungs. And that's, that's clear. That's called a pleural effusion. So that easily happened with Jesus, you know, that, you know, his lung could have been collapsed. You know, he could have had trouble breathing for that reason too. 
And then just the fact of the blunt trauma could cause fluid to collect around the uh, lungs, which would be clear. Now, if you plunge a spear into that, what you're going to get is something that, that the that the first century observer is going to call water because it's going to be clear. Mm-hmm. And then it's going to puncture the heart and, you know, probably more likely than not the right side of the heart, because that would have the most blood in the heart chambers that would mix with that fluid. And then it would look like blood. So the, the, you know, origin, the church father thought that was a miraculous sign. Right. But we know, I mean, that's easily explainable medically. I mean, that, that just makes complete sense. And so, like I said, you know, if this was fabricated and mythological and, and something that somebody, you know, made up as, as some kind of fantastic story, that wouldn't fly medically. But when we look at these things, we say, yeah, yeah, that's easily understandable. And that gives some intrinsic evidence to the Gospels that, the gospel is is accurate. It's a valid historical document. Because even these the gospels are all written at different places by different people at different times, but they all say basically all the same overriding story. Right. So you say um, uh, page 139, chapter 7, you write uh, in the cause of death is the title of the chapter. Uh, you say that the physiological mechanism leading to Jesus' death is not self-evident and cannot be known without absolute certainty. Uh, skip yeah. down. However, medical analysis of the biblical descriptions of Jesus' death provide clues to the physiological processes that were most likely occurring in Jesus' body. In the quote, how important are the Gospels when determining or trying to piece together that physiological determination, the final determination, or an attempted the final determination? Well, what I was, what I was trying to say there was that, you know, we can't say with certainty because we don't, Jesus didn't die in an intensive care unit. Right. We don't have hospital records. I don't know what his blood gases were and what his laboratories were from minute to minute, what his vital signs were. I don't have that information. What we have to do is look at the information we do have that is reasonably historically valid <clears throat> and do what we would call a forensic reconstruction. We look at the facts and say, based on this, the most likely um, mechanism, and really in medicine, ca- cause of death for Jesus was crucifixion. What we were, we were really talking about, the mechanism of death physiologically. Um, and so we can reconstruct that and say with a reasonable degree of medical certainty. And, and that's how you, that's how a court case is, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you don't know, there's always, you know, a little bit something that may not be fully known completely, but you can usually make statements about more likely than not with a reasonable degree of medical certainty. And those things are hold weight in a, in a court determination. And that, that's kind of because I've done so many court uh, preparation of court documents and those types of things. That's really how I wrote the book. I wanted somebody, my intent was that somebody that knew little to nothing about Jesus could pick up the book and understand what happened historically, what was happening politically, what happened to him physically, what happened to him physiologically, and, and how he ultimately died. So, yeah, we can we can piece it together with what we would call a forensic reconstruction. Now, Jesus uh, told us 
you know, after I finished that, I I was reading, and I think it's I think it's Matthew 26, where Jesus is either at the Last Supper, it's the Passover Seder, and he picks up the cup, cup of blessing, and he says, This is the New Testament in my blood, which is poured out for the remission of sins. And and then I, I thought it just struck me as I thought, oh my God, he's telling us his cause of death. He's telling us he's going to bleed to death. Mm. And that's, that's what traumatic hemorrhagic shock is. Jesus bled to death. Oh, wow. See, we don't make that connection. See, see, I see is a reason why we've have Dr. Bergeron on. We're not making these connections. I mean, that's, I didn't even know that that I haven't even paid attention to that portion. Wow. So Jesus didn't die of a broken heart. No, you know, interestingly, that's, that's the first thing I ever heard when I was a teenager, I heard somebody say that, but that's really fallen out of favor. That was, that was really suggested uh, by, by a physician, Dr. Stroud. And I think it was in the 1840s, but nobody really knew much about heart disease in those days. Somebody, you know, the, a young man like that, their heart's not going to gonna rupture, uh, you know, short of trauma, short of sticking a spear into it. Uh, by natural causes, the usual cause of heart ruptures is from a, a massive heart attack. Oh, wow. 30-year-old men don't have, you know, active on a Mediterranean diet, healthy 30-year-old, yeah. they don't have heart attacks like that. <laughs> yeah, they're walking everywhere. I mean, there was days Jesus didn't eat, fasting, so he's giving his digestive system a break. I'm not a medical expert, but I'm assuming that I don't think, I think his heart was healthy enough. But uh, and that's that's really fallen out of favor. People don't really think that too much anymore. Um, what I hear every Easter sermon, every Easter sermon without fail, the preacher will always get up and say, well, Jesus suffocated. <clears throat> and um, that, that's an interesting, interesting idea. Um, where that comes from is from a suspension torture that was used in the Austro-Hungarian war and was described by a, uh, a Czechoslovakian surgeon named uh, 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 Heineck and uh, a French surgeon named Lebec. And they wrote about that in the 20s or 30s, I think the two of them. And then, then uh, Dr. Barbet, who wrote the book, A Doctor at Calvary, he was a French surgeon. He's the fellow that was driving nails through people through the hands that he'd amputated. Mm. Uh, so very interesting guy. And his book is, is very good in many respects. But what he did was he embraced this idea of suffocation because he knew about the writings of the other physicians. And in appendix number one of his book, he records an eyewitness account of someone that was uh, experiencing sus- suspension torture in the Nazi concentration camp. It was part of the Nazi penal code that they could torture people that way. And this eyewitness told Dr. Barbet that at three hours, the person that was suspended with his hands over his head and just hanging that way that he turned blue and appeared to suffocate. And so that really made a striking image to Dr. Barbet. And he thought, you know, that must be how Jesus died because, you know, their hands are suspended basically. And, and you know, he, he thought that, although in, in academic Honesty, he, he did admit that 
other people felt differently, but that that was how he uh, felt about it. The problem is <clears throat> that um, you know the suspension and torture that that was used by the Nazis and others was with their hands directly overhead. Mm-hmm. Their feet were unsupported, and they would even put weights on their feet. Mm. Horrible thing. It would dislocate the shoulders, and people could suffocate if they stayed that way long enough. Right. But with crucifixion, their arms are at their side. They're fixed in place, and their feet are supported uh, by being nailed in place. And people would stay on the cross for, for days sometimes. Now, you know, and, and people say, well, you know, you just had to pull himself up every time he took a breath. Well, you, you imagine if you're beaten close to, close to death and the average number of, of breaths per minute is, you know, 12 to 14, somewhere in that range, you got to pull yourself up every time you take a breath, mm-hmm. about dead to begin with. How long do you think you're la- going to last doing that? And, and if Jesus is suffocating, how's he going to speak to John and tell him to take care of his mother? Right. going to speak to the guy next to him and tell him, you're going to be with paradise, in paradise with me today. Right. You know, how the, and the other guys are, they're all, they're talking to each other. And one of them is ridiculing you. You know, if you're suffocating and you're, you can't figure out how you're going to get your last breath, you're not worried about having a conversation with the guy next to you, let alone stay on the cross for days on end. It, it would just be unsustainable. Nobody would be able to do that. So the, the idea, I understand how Dr. Barbet got the idea. And part of it came from the blood flow patterns on the stains of the Shroud of Turin. And he, he kind of took that as empiric evidence uh, which, you know, that, that's a, a different topic and a different controversy. But uh, so he kind of put that together in a, what I would call an a priori conclusion that Jesus had to pull himself up and therefore he suffocated. And, and every time he took a breath, he had to pull himself up. But, you know, that just really doesn't make a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. The other thing is if you have your wrist nailed through your wrist, and, and you're leaning forward, your biceps muscles in a position that it can't, it's going to not going to be able to contract. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not gonna, you'd have to rotate your wrists to be able to pull yourself up and you're just, you're not going to be able to do it. So it's, there's a lot of logical problems with it, but his book became very popular. I think it was published in the, around 1950, somewhere in that range, uh, became very popular and it became part of, you know, church urban folklore that Jesus suffocated. And I, I get it. I mean, that's easy to understand. That's a whole lot easier to understand than, than shock and the progression of shock and, and, and coagulopathy and all the chemistry things that we talk about. But, mm-hmm. you know, truth is, truth is that um, things don't always come to us in simple terms. And, uh, you know, and we can look at it medically speaking and say, no, suffocation really doesn't make sense. And Dr. Zugaby, you know, kind of concurred with that, that, you know, uh, his book was in uh, published 2005, I think. And uh, he, he named the cause of death uh, crucifixion by uh, traumatic hemorrhagic shock. So if you had to write Jesus's death certificate, you would put shock. Yes. Okay. Uh, the cause of death um, crucifixion with the complications of traumatic hemorrhagic shock. And in modern day times, we could do blood tests. We could do, say a lot of things about it. 
we could we could determine for sure if he had a coagulation problem and so forth. But but you know the most logical thing would be to say traumatic hemorrhagic shock. That's what the story is. He was beaten to a pulp. He he bled to death. You know all the signs are there in the reconstruction of what was happening to him. And then let me let me jump back because after he died, you know they they snapped the legs of the other two. Um, obviously, what Severus? I hope I'm saying his last name right. That archaeological find is significant because what he espouses was that the Jews had an honorary or the Romans honored the custom, and so they wanted to hasten the death quick and break the legs. Right. Be- and so it, it messed with a lot of scholars. I know for certain uh, John Dominic Crossing, uh, I, I don't know if Bart Ehrman still holds to this or not, uh, but there were several others I know off the top of my head that are part of the Jesus Seminar. And so they were part of that crew that said, well, he had to be left on the cross all week because that was Roman custom until he died. And then on top of that, you know, you would have had um, – jackals coming and eating his body whatever foul of the air uh they would have ate off his body and then they would have threw it in a mass grave i think um daryl bach at dallas theological seminary has found some rabbinic literature although it's old but there was tradition that a criminal could not be buried in a family cemetery and hence joseph of arimathea the borrowed tomb but that's just something scholars are chewing on about um, Jesus having to be buried in a bar tomb. Well, how important was emphasizing to Pilate? I love to say his, uh, his name, Pontius Pilatus. How important? <laughs> hey, I hope that was good. I, I took two years of Greek for a reason. <laughs> that sounded good to me. <laughs> I love it. It makes you sound smart. Pontius Pilatus. Um, <laughs> How important was that spear being mentioned to Pilate? Because it sounded like Pilate was shocked, like he died quick, right? Like he he is dead. And so yeah. how important is that this spear in that regard? Uh I think I think well, it was you know the centurion's place to say that that uh he had died. I and like I said, there are some literary references that say the body could release after a death blow had been delivered. That was probably customary when a body was going to be released, which was almost never. Um, but yeah, you had to you had to have permission, and he had to authorize the release of the body. I think the spear is more important to the crucifixion team, the soldiers on the site. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you know, if it was me, I would. You know, if it was his life or mine, you know. I'm sorry, but here you go. You know, you're not going to survive this. And uh, uh, so they were not going to release the body or take it down unless they had the full assurance that he was fully dead and they knew how to deliver a death blow. And, uh, you know, they knew he was dead and it couldn't be anything else but dead. Um, Yeah, so... It was unusual for Joseph to take the body, but it was permissible. Okay. Let me, um, I know we got to get ready to wrap up here, but I want to ask you about the resurrection because uh, you do write on it. 
what are problems with the naturalistic theories like uh, mass hallucination? Uh, they were deeply grieved, so they might have, you know, conjured up their own images of Jesus out of that bereavement. What are what are issues with that? Well, you know, it's it's funny. After I wrote the crucifixion article, I, I wanted to study about the hallucination hypothesis. And so I collected everything I, I could find about that. And it's what it, it's it's written by skeptical scholars. You know, I'll use the word politely. And so I got all that stuff and I read it. And I remember I read one of them and I threw it on the ground and shouted at the book. I said, you believe that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> because what they what they say, you know, they say, oh, well, they were hallucinating. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist, but every person go, going through medical education is exposed to all sorts of things and works in all wards of the hospital at one time or another. I, I've seen people that hear voices and have hallucinations, and they're not pretty things. They're not warm and, and fuzzy hugging, you know, saviors. They're they're, the voices tell them to jump out of a window, to light themselves on fire, to, mm. uh, you, you know, th- 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 it's, it's an ugly side of human illness. Right. So, and when you say that someone's hallucinating, you can't just say the word hallucinate and walk away because hallucination is not a diagnosis. It is not an explanation. It is a symptom of something else. Mm-hmm. What causes hallucinations? Well, in, in broad brushes, there's there's three things. You know, one of them would be an anatomical structural issue with the brain, maybe a certain type of tumor or something that causes a seizure activity to occur, or something that would cause a hallucination by that kind of mechanism. The other one would be a chemical one, like uh someone that's going through a chemical delirium like like alcohol withdrawal, uh, what's called delirium tremens or the DTs. And those kind of hallucinations are really scary. They're like snakes are in the bed and there's elephants walking in the room and that kind of stuff. They're not comforting hallucinations. And then the other uh, form of hallucination would be what's called psychodynamic or intrusion of mental illness into the conscious mind. And those are people that have psychiatric illnesses like schizophrenia. And so when you say somebody's hallucinating, you must say why they're hallucinating. And, and if you look at uh, you know, Jesus' disciples, do you mean to tell me that they're all deathly ill, that they're all suffering from uncontrolled and severe psychiatric illness, which had no treatment in their time? Mm-hmm. They banded together and launched the, the most successful rapid expansion of uh, Christianity through the known world in, in their lifetime. You know, the, a band of lunatics and people just, they don't do that. They would be, you know, ostracized and <clears throat> kicked out of normal society. No one would listen to them. Uh, you know, it just doesn't make sense. And there's no way to, to even... Uh, foster a plausible explanation for that. Um, you mentioned uh, what uh, mass hysteria or mass hallucinations. Right. Uh, you know, hysteria is kind of an old word. They don't really use that 
word anymore uh, too much. I mean, it's, it's a decent word, but it's kind of antiquated. Nowadays, we would call that uh, sociogenic uh, or group sociogenic illness, where people within a group will experience the same kind of uh, psychological phenomena. And sometimes they're, they're hallucinatory. Mm-hmm. But when they occur, they're always, uh, they're, they're within the group, there's a group sense of expectancy and excitement. And everybody's on the same page. They're all excited about something. And then they have some kind of hallucinatory experience, whether it's auditory or visual. Um, but they're never the same thing from person to person. No two people can possibly have the exact same hallucination because it only occurs within the milieu of the individual's brain. So that no two people can possibly have the same hallucination. So you, you talked about the first creed of the church. You know, how can you know, 500 people seeing Jesus at the same time that's not possible to be explained by mass hysteria. Right. So that, that explanation just doesn't fly. Um, the, you know, another one people say, oh, that well, you know, they, they were grieving. They were having grief experiences. And, you know, uh, and probably every family knows something about grief. Um, I remember when my grandfather died, my grandmother would tell me that once in a while she, she could hear his, her call, him calling her name. Th- those kind of experiences are, are really common. The most common type is they feel a sense of closeness to the departed spouse, but it's, it's almost always with the spouse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not with other people, your school teacher or your mentor or something. It's not, nothing like that. It's maybe, you know, maybe a child or maybe, you know, but most often it's, it's a spouse. And, um, you know, in my grandmother's case, it was kind of like at that moment where you're falling asleep or at the sleep-wake cycle where your mind is more open to suggestion. Um, but uh, they can occur, but they're not pathological, meaning we don't consider them a, a sign of illness, but uh, they're they're usually just kind of a sense of feeling close to that person, but you can have auditory ones and and even visual ones. But uh, when they have a visual apparition like that, which is rare, but if somebody has that, if they try to interact with the visual experience, it dissipates, goes away. And never, you know, people that have those experiences, my grandmother told me, I don't know if she told anyone else, I don't think she did. People don't talk about it. Right. It doesn't change their life. It does not convince the spouse that their departed loved one has resurrected. It never does that. And in fact, in, in almost all cases, they won't talk about it. The, these kind of studies came up with survey studies, really, where people start asking questions. Otherwise, it'd be largely unknown and was largely unknown until people... Uh, Dr. Dr. Reese, who I quoted in the book, who started writing about that, I think his first article was in the 70s. Mm-hmm. That's when people started studying that. Otherwise, it was largely unknown. Uh, so, you know, bereavement experiences don't explain it. And again, the biggest take-home piece is that no two people 
can ever possibly have the same hallucination simultaneously. Any group experience with Jesus and the disciples cannot be explained uh, as a psychological phenomenon. Mm. Wow. Wow. Um, and so you're talking like, I mean, when, you know, you had the 500, then you had those that witnessed him as what well, the, towards the end of Luke ascend uh, into heaven. I mean, that's too, too large of a scale for that size of hallucination and well, all and of them to report the same thing. Correct. Well, yeah. I mean, and then again, like for group, group hallucinations, and, and again, they're all different from person to person, but there's the disciples sitting in a room they're in hiding because they think they're going to get killed. Right. Right. You know, they're not excited. They're not expecting this. They never got it, you know, until that moment that Jesus shows up. So the group psychological component for all of those people doesn't fit with people mm -hmm. experience mass hysteria or group, or what we would call a group sociogenic illness is the better word now. So that just doesn't make sense. And, you know, so there's the 12, the two appearances to the 12. There's Jesus cooking fish for, you know, uh, Peter and, and, and John and, you know, and, and then the, the 500. That's, you think about th that first creed, how stunning that, that was. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Christ died for us according to the scriptures. You know, he appeared to the disciples. He appeared to 500 at once, most of whom are still living. Right. You know, we can't, what it, we can't say that anymore. But no, and Paul say, is, you know, and Paul is saying that, like, y'all can go back there and check. Like, yes. these people are still living, you know, who have seen the risen Christ. Go and check for yourself when he's, you know, he's telling the Corinthians. I mean, they, they gave him a lot. They gave, Corinthians gave Paul a hard time, to say the least. They gave, they gave Paul a hard time. Um, I think, you know, you know, in chapter two of my book, I think Luke did exactly that. I think he traveled with Paul and I think he started talking to all, everyone he could talk to. Because I think, and I'm not alone, I didn't, get the, I didn't make this up on my own, I, I, but I do think that Luke wrote his, his uh, gospel and the book of Acts uh, for Paul's trial before Caesar. So, you know, as, as, a, as a legal brief, as mm -hmm. interrogatories, because you can imagine that, you know, you go to that level of court and you're going to stand there before Caesar. You better have some decent documentation. You better not be lying about it. <laughs> you know? so right. He went and he even says that he studied everything and put it in order. And here it is. So uh, all of that stuff could be investigated by the Roman legal system. Yeah. Uh, so so, it, so those people were around in Luke's time, and I'm sure that he talked to a bunch of them. Yep. Oh, yeah. And, and in the way he writes his his gospel is go check for yourself. So he <laughs> exactly. names names, you know, exactly. and it's the, the way he's naming the names is for go check for yourself. They're still living. You can go talk to them. Um, so and, I, you know, that's pretty cool in and of itself how just to add to how we can, we can view it just not as old Theophilus. These were some folks that once existed. No, he's telling the opposite. These people still live. Uh, we're living while time wrote that wrote Luke and, uh, and, and acts, you know? So, all right. So I got a, a few questions for you that came in on Instagram. Um, so 
um, uh, Instagram user married underscore as underscore one married is one. He wants to know, Dr. Bergeron, what are some things you would say to a modern skeptic who doubts the crucifixion happening to Jesus? Um, well, uh, and, and I'm not trying to sell books, but if you give him my book, that's yeah, please buy the book. I'll, I'll, I'll advertise. I'm, I'm saying this is a good book. Well, Trust me, it is good. That's what I wrote it for, is for somebody who didn't know anything that we can go step by step and, and understand what was happening. But there's an abundance of historical information about Jesus outside the Bible. Um, you know, and, and it's funny, I was, I was speaking, sitting next to Dr. Habermas, and we were talking, and I, I, I said something like, well, you could throw the Bible out the window. And, and, and everybody gasped. <laughs> oh no, don't do it. But you know, <laughs> Bible to know that Jesus was an actual historical figure that and that he was executed by Pontius Pilate. And and that his followers believed in his resurrection to the point that they would die first before say it didn't happen. You know, that information is historical and it's outside the Bible. And I, I would cite um, you know, Tacitus, the Roman historian. Yeah. Uh, who was, uh, you know, I think he was an orator. I think he was in the Roman uh, government. He had access to uh, the Roman libraries or whatever the Roman dossier was on Christianity. He had access to it. And so, you know, it, it's, it's a very uh, respected historical source because he didn't have any kindness towards Christians at all. He thought they were peculiar nuts. And so when you have somebody who doesn't like you saying something about you that you want them to say, or you're happy they're saying it, that's a pretty good indicator that that, that really is true. And so he's not alone in, the, in that statement, but he, I think his statement is one of the more specific ones to say that, look, Pontius Pilate executed Jesus by the supreme penalty, which means crucifixion. It doesn't mean anything else. Crucifixion was the supreme penalty. And, uh, and that has, you know, gave rise to the rapid expansion of Christianity, the Roman Empire. So there's there's a lot there. You know, we we read the Bible, uh, and as Christians, we believe it. But we should also understand that, specifically with reference to the descriptions of Jesus' crucifixion, it has standalone historical uh, importance because we know it happened. We know what the practices were, and it fits with that. There's no reason to doubt the descriptions in the Bible of Jesus' execution, and it is known and documented outside the Bible also. Yeah. Um, now, I do know out of the historical sources, there's only one that denies Jesus died on the cross, and that's the Quran. Now, when you get into where that information came from, it came from Gnostic uh, Christians that somehow Jesus swooned. Let me ask you something. What, what's wrong with the swoon theory in the cross? Well, explain, let me explain the swoon, swoon theory for, for our audience and then what's wrong with that. Well, the swoon, the swoon theory, and there are different people that propose kind of different things, but that, that in a nutshell, it's that Jesus really didn't die, that he was somehow recovered or nursed back to health, 
and uh, then he was seen alive again, and, and it you know gave rise to this kind of misinformation. Um, but like I said before, uh, they were not going to release a body without being absolutely certain that it was that it was dead, because it would mean the death of the soldier. It just wasn't going to happen, mm-hmm. and the beatings that he took, the torture, you know, uh, and most specifically the coup de gras of the spear through the chest. It just, it's just not possible. It's inconsistent with history, with known Roman crucifixion practices. It's inconsistent with the descriptions, which fit, you know, uh, make sense medically, you know, so they can say that, but there's really not a logical way to support that. Like I said, if this was mythological, if it was made up, if it was some, you know, uh, confabulated story, you know, it would be pretty obvious to a medical reader. But it all makes sense. And that's, that's part of the intrinsic evidence of the authenticity of what we read. Yeah. Um, let me uh let me see here. Let me add this little tidbit because there was artifacts, um, which is a part of the Near East Archaeological Society, um, which I have membership with them. But there there was an article that came out. I never knew anything about this. It was called it's called the Nazareth inscription. So supposedly because the governors and prefects would have to give a report to Caesar uh, that this, the resurrection supposedly was mentioned to Caesar by Pilate um, or Tiberius, whichever, whichever my, my, I got to get the timeline straight on, on that. But supposedly got word got back to Caesar and he issued an edict Um and it, it's it's called the Nazareth inscription. Uh, and I think it's because based upon where it was found and then they did some stuff about uh, the material. But nonetheless, let me um, I'll read a couple lines. It says uh, this is uh, translated from the Greek into the English on that inscription. But it says it is my decision concerning graves and tombs. Whoever has made them for religious observing observances of parents, children, or household members that these remain undisturbed forever. He goes on to basically say that grave robbing can result into death, whereas the, what the article supposes before then, grave robbing and stealing bodies were not death. It was not the death penalty. You couldn't get the death penalty for that. But after this, the death penalty came about. So uh, I know some scholars are, are chewing and going back and forth on that, but there is so much evidence outside of the scriptures. And you just think, think to yourself as why didn't the Romans or why didn't the Jews write against it? They said they stole the body. Well, you know, you know, like I said, most of the time they just left the body up there. Yeah. Yep. And so all they had to do was pluck Jesus body in the grave and put it back up there. That's all they had to do to, to just quell the whole thing. Mm-hmm. They couldn't. 
you know, so I'm not, you know, it's just, yeah, it's. And why would you, why would you preach resurrection in your backyard? Well, why, <laughs> why would you do it if you, if you knew you're going to get killed? Exactly. You go, you go, you can do, do it somewhere else, you know, uh, because anytime you, they can say, well, there's his body right there, you know, ta-da, ta-da. Yeah. And I oh, think man, another dude. problem with, you know, and even going back to swoon theory, wouldn't his body be badly dismembered and disfigured with all of that beating? I mean, yeah. You know, there's no way even if he survived, because I, I think there's some, I think Islam will say, well, it was a twin or some, there's some people say it was Didymus. Didymus was Jesus's twin. I mean, there's all sorts of theories back and forth. It's just. Yeah, but you know, they make that. <laughs> and then pretty much, you know, so you got to take it with a grain of salt. There's just right. much hard history that points to, you know, what we believe is really true. And, and I, I know some people are just not going to get it. Don't want to believe it. I get that. People didn't believe in Jesus in his time, even when they saw him. But um, to those of us who do believe, we have we have logical basis for it. It's it's understandable. We can talk about it in intelligent terms that are provable, or at least the evidence is clear. It, it, at least from my standpoint, medically, but historically. Um, you know, in many ways. So historically inside and outside the Bible. Yeah. All right. So I got two more questions for you. One is from Iraq 9202. Iraq asks, how did Romans develop a process that was so traumatic and horrific yet thorough? It's history. You know, stringing people up on a tree is, is an ancient sort of death penalty it's, it didn't originate with the the romans it's thought that the romans took it from the carthaginians um but the romans did utilize it from 300 bc until the uh, reign of constantine the actual outlaw or, or discontinuation of crucifixion is not exactly known except that we know that it didn't progress beyond constantine's reign so that's 600 years. That's a long time for people that would crucify hundreds of people in a day, thousands of people uh, at one time with the Spartacus Rebellion. They were well-practiced. They knew how to do it. Uh, the, the condemned person was delivered to a crucifixion team that was supervised by a centurion. They knew exactly what to do, how to get it done. They knew how to pronounce death. They knew how to deliver a death blow if they were ever going to release the body, which was almost never. Uh, so, you know, it's it's just something that they had a strong belief in capital punishment as a deterrent and mm -hmm. did all the time. Yeah, I mean, they, uh, I think, too, I know it goes back and forth as far as who did they get the practice from because it was being practiced by the Carthaginians and then as well as the Persians. Yes. And I just I I know I'm I may be alone, but I think they probably combined the both and cranked it up a hundred notches because I, I think you're right. I think, you're I think they I, I really do. I was just sitting in my office one day just like pondering on that question. I just I really do think they took the both and just had a baby and the baby is just really 
nuts. I mean, because Martin Hingle, I think it's Martin Hingle that writes in his book that there was a case where there was a condemned man. Uh, they took him and put him in a play. The Romans did this. Took This is how brutal they were. Took him, put him in a play, nailed him on a cross, and they brought a wild bear out and let the bear eat that man alive on the cross. Yeah. This was a play. Yeah. You know, and he writes, they will, they will impale him through the through private parts. I mean, they will yes. make him fight before crucifixions, like one dude versus 20. They specialized in killing. I mean, they really... They did not play. And I mean, I even I do. I, I would suppose that even if Jesus survived, I don't think the Romans would have stopped at just killing off the centurion and soldiers. They probably would have went after their family if they had one just to teach them a lesson. Like nobody is to get off this cross. This is dead serious. Like there's no way Jesus Roman crucifixion. He could have gotten off that cross alive. Yeah. These guys, as what Dr. Bergeron writes in his book as well, they were trained in killing, and they did it very well. Yeah, a lot of practice, a lot of time to learn. A lot of practice and without remorse, without remorse. All right, last, well, yeah, last question for you. This comes from underscore C dot J underscore. Was it a cross or a stake? That's an interesting question uh, because the uh, – the, the Jehovah's Witness say, say that it was a, a, a stake or a single pole. Um, that comes from uh, a classical Greek interpretation of the stipes, but the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, which was uh, kind of the common language or the lingua franca of the time. Uh -huh. And we know that the, the practices were that it was a, a crossbar, uh, like I described to you, uh, and that's the patibulum, which was the crossbar. But that, the root word for that comes from like the crossbar that barred the door shut. Mm -hmm. It would be, maybe that's how they started off with it. They'd grab one of those and nailed them to that and then put them up on, on the vertical section. Um, but yeah, a, what, what was called a crux, crux simplex would be just a stake. But that was really more for what, when they would impale someone. And, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to use graphic language, but you, you've said the same. They, they put that through the private parts and then up through the mouth and impaled them and just mm. there uh, as a spectacle. So that would be the crux simplex. But the, but the cross was a, a crossbar. Um, and it was, um, like I said, uh, the vertical section was fixed in the ground, the uh, horizontal section was carried by the victim to the crucifixion site, and then they were hung up there and nailed in place. Yep. All right. Well, Dr. Bergeron, anything that you would like to add uh, that we may not have covered before we wrap it up? I think we gave it a good treatment. <laughs> well, good, good. I know this. I know this, I'm enjoying it. I really, I can go for another couple of hours, but we got to spend time with family. So, <laughs> Listen, um, thank, thank you all. So, oh, you're, you're most welcome. Is, most welcome. I, I so respect what you're doing. And this is just a lot of fun for me. And it's, you're obviously a real bright guy and you, you were directing the conversation. I do think we covered a lot of territory and I, I, I pray that it's a blessing to, to the listeners. And look, please get his, if you want to know more about, um, 
Dr. Bergeron's um, the medical aspect, but he just doesn't. Uh, what I appreciate the most is he just he gives full detail. Um, and that's see, I'm a person that needs to who, what, when, where, and why. I just don't, I can't just rock with the one aspect and I don't have full detail. He goes into church history, he goes into the New Testament, he's going to give you uh, outside sources, uh, primary sources, uh, church fathers. If you're that type of student and you want to really chew on, uh, Jesus's passion. I mean, he even handles the Greek for the passion. You know, <laughs> what medical doctor is going to handle the Greek of the New Testament, right? This, I mean, come on. You know, so I highly recommend you pick a copy of the cover art is beautiful. My, I have a two-year-old daughter and she, I had this book out and immediately she pointed to it and said, Titus, Titus, and I knew what she's saying was Jesus. So, uh beautiful 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 cover cover art i mean it even has the blood and water coming out of the wound details so um i picked my copy up at barnes and noble anywhere that uh i know amazon anywhere else that might sell um i i don't know i, I know barnes, some of barnes and noble's locations had it um so i don't know beyond that okay all right well worst case go to amazon um that's my go-to. Uh, I know my nickname has become Barnes and Nobles with some of my friends, but uh, Amazon is my my chief candidate. My wife even tagged me the other day on Facebook as far as uh, attending Amazon anonymous meetings, the new AA meetings. Because <laughs> I got to get a book. I got uh, Dr. Bergeron awarded um, raised on the third day. Um, where uh, David Beck and Mike Lacona are editors, and it's uh, defending the historicity of the resurrection. So you have a plethora of New Testament, or I'm sorry, just a plethora of Christian philosophers, theologians, and New Testament scholars that deal with the resurrection portion, uh, the historicity of that. Um, but even you know, one thing that I do, I look at footnotes. So I, I've been researching some footnotes that Dr. Uh, Bergeron has put in there are in my Amazon cart. So uh, I learned that back in seminary when you needed some sources, because they would tell you in a the paper, these better be scholarly sources. So I look in the textbook and see their footnotes and bam, got my sources. <laughs> got to read the footnotes. There's a lot of stuff in there. It is. We can, it is a lot of information. Like people will braze over it. There's some extra, like if you want more detail on the sentence or where you see the footnote marker drop down and they might give you a little bit more detail. I mean, there's some good stuff in there. That's some the good juices is in that portion of that. But Dr. Bergeron, again, God bless you. Thank you so much uh, for joining us on another Truth Be Told Hosea 4-6 podcast on this Good Friday uh, thank God for his son, Jesus Christ, and thank God that he stayed on the cross for you and I. Again, God bless you. God keep you. And may he comfort you in all. God bless.